Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well then, you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is September 22nd, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, as always, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? Good to be here, Neil. Um, so uh, I'm glad you're back in the D.C. area because uh, things are heating up in D.C. Uh, they are. <laughs> something we're going to talk about, the uh, Supreme Court vacancy. We now have only eight justices, and um, uh, President Trump is trying to fill that ninth spot in a hurry. This brings back... Uh, well, we're going to talk about that later. Obviously, don't want to don't want to uh, preempt my own material here. Um, also, as always, uh, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together with my team at Hedgeye Risk Management, including uh, Christian here. Uh, please uh, Google it; you'll find it. Among other things, you will be able to get our Newswire, which comes out daily, I should say. It comes out even on Saturday morning. So that just shows you how industrious we are. And watch my um, show on COVID-19, special interviews, um, and special topics that come up. So as always, we have a big agenda. Uh, and uh, this has been a uh, actually a very busy week for me. So you know, Christian, this may be a little more unplugged than usual. <laughs> so we will, we will see. Uh, we're going to do our usual coverage of uh, market trends. Uh, then we will talk about the Supreme Court vacancy. I was on, um, you know, with Bloomberg this morning, and that's all they wanted to talk about. Uh, and really, what what the impact is going to be? Uh, why the Supreme Court vacancy is such a focal point? What effects it will have on the election? Uh, through many different, you know, kind of causal chains, uh, and what are the longer-term political after effects, and 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 even uh, what are the effects on the economy uh, as we see, uh, you know, people still trying to negotiate on the stimulus and so on, uh, and kind of where is that going? Uh, then we're going to go around the world. I think we have more than our usual share of uh, international news. We're going to talk a little bit about Poland. Uh, Jaroslav Kaczynski and animal rights, interestingly enough. So there's you have populism taking a novel turn. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Poland and Germany. We're going to talk about Germany v. Putin. We're going to talk about Putin v. Belarus. <laughs> we're kind of going down. <laughs> and then from Belarus, we're going to actually, there's a very logical step to Cyprus and Cyprus to Turkey and Greece. And finally, we're going to end up, I believe, in the U.K., uh, and the new Brexit mess is now appearing. And finally, uh, Hong Kong, Thailand, and I believe a little bit on India. The last thing we're going to talk about uh, is actually a Newswire item that uh, I think is actually very interesting. I've, I've written about it over the years a little bit. It's something you can just kind of predict. Uh, this is real demography. It is an aging cohort of childless women. Uh, the rate of childlessness in America roughly doubled from the beginning to the end of the baby boom generation. 
So you have a lot of women who are now age 50 to 65 uh, who are almost uh, inevitably going to bring about soaring record uh, rates of childlessness among 85 uh, plus year olds, uh, childless elderly women, you know, late elders, frail elders, many of them will be widows in the 2040s. Uh, what does that mean? How do we deal with it? Uh, and interestingly, this is occasioned by a new study that came out in the UK, which is seeing exactly the same trend. Uh, so, you know, where does that come from? Why is this happening? Um, just to show you how generations and looking at history generationally uh, connects through what I call the cohort diagonal. It connects our future with our past in, in fascinating ways. So we'll be getting into that. And without more ado, uh, Christian, why don't you jump in and tell us how the markets did? All right. Well, Neil, over the last four trading days, the S&P 500 is down 2.5% and the global is down 3.8%. Uh, as for the VIX, that came in today, closed at 26.74, a little bit up from where it was last week, but generally in the same place. Right. Um, and yeah, I actually, um, well, why don't you talk uh, first a little bit about the uh, economic indicators? I believe they're mostly in the U.S., and then we can right. make a few comments on where we're going. Yeah. Well, first we got the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index for September. That dropped. It came in at 15. Now, you know, that's its lowest reading since May. Uh, this was mostly because price pressures increased and inventories fell. Uh, we also got the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index for September. That had an increase up to 21, and that's its highest reading since September 2018. Uh, the rise here was mostly due to new orders and employment ticking up. Uh, we also got the Michigan Consumer Sentiment preliminary readings for September. That had a pretty big rise from 74 in August to 78.9 in September. This is its highest reading since March when the pandemic began. And finally, we got the Chicago National Activity Index. This dropped, and this is for August, came in at 0.79. Now, this is quite a drop, but that's actually more in line where you normally see this index. You know, it really only moves slight amounts and it's not as important because it does come out quite a bit late you know we're just getting the august numbers now right and it is a um, but it is extraordinarily comprehensive right it, it's more of a, um, a rear view mirror uh take on where the economy is um look i mean uh, i think things aren't bad actually uh i know we've seen the the market go down recently you know, our own algorithms actually show turning around uh, in the in the near future in terms of uh, where the market's going. Uh, I think, uh, the, you know, on the good side, uh, you know, COVID is kind of going sideways. It had that uh, it had that brief uh, rise uh, after Labor Day weekend, I think, <laughs> which caused it. Uh, but I think it's come back down again. It's really moving sideways. And we are moving into colder, drier temperatures. So if we keep that up, we'll just have to see. We may be able to avoid a severe second, you know, a severe second wave. Um, and as for um, uh, the economy, the dollar is still going down, which is good for business. And the, the inflation pressures at the same time are actually abating. I mean, gold is uh, down. Uh, oil is is going down. The the break even ten year is beginning to go down a little bit. So this is actually not a bad place, uh, given where we might otherwise have been. Uh, probably the best that uh, the incumbent uh, can hope for coming into the election. Um, but 
as always, this is fragile, uh, but I'm just mean to say the kind of the micro trend I think is 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 not bad. The one thing I did want to talk about is is obviously uh, the Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, Trump wants to fill it with a woman with the um, with a profile background like federal appeals judge Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who's circuit judge, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the circuit in Chicago. I had I think she spends a lot of her time or has spent a lot of her time teaching at Notre Dame. And uh, Barbara Lagoa, a Cuban-American uh, 11th Circuit Court uh, judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals in Atlanta, although she's spent a lot of her time. That includes Florida. Uh, the political appeal of these two appointments is obvious uh, for Trump. Amy Coney Barrett has been talked about a lot in evangelical circles. In my opinion, Trump absolutely has to do this. I mean, he has no choice. I mean, this is why the evangelicals voted en masse for Trump, not necessarily because they liked him, but because he was going to, you know, he promised, right? He was going <laughs> to pick from the select list and he was going to change the direction of this country when it came to, you know, the interpretation of uh, of uh, uh, precedents like Roe v. Wade. Uh, and, and clearly at the same time, Democrats have to protest, right? I think one thing that many people might want to know, this question occasionally comes up, why in the world is the Supreme Court, has, why has it become such a focal point? And I ask that because if you go back and look at the Federalist Papers and, you know, the design of our Constitution, the Supreme Court was practically an afterthought. I mean, it was by far the least important of the three branches. The legislative was the most important believe it or not, the president was number two. Uh, and the Supreme Court, you know, it was just sort of a, to adjudicate, you know, issues under federal law. It took John Marshall even to establish the principle of constitutional review. But of course, early on in our republic, um, you know, most of the police powers, most of what government did was done through states and localities. And of course, Supreme Court originally didn't cover that at all. Was gradually extended uh, through the extension of the Bill of Rights with the you know Fourteenth Amendment, and it's the story we're all familiar with. But I think it's incredible now how much the Supreme Court is at the center of everything, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the weakness of our legislative branch. Um, and you know, progressives in government, I think, in generally, you know, they like to be you know the experts. They like to be the technocrats. They like to be the people who are who know or educated and so on. And I think when they, you know, inevitably when they can't persuade the majority of the public through the legislative branch to enact things, they sort of had recourse to to rights. And I think that that works actually both sides. And I'm not saying that's just progressive. I think to some extent. Um, uh, conservatives, particularly populists, uh, make the same point. So everything now is a federal issue. You know, when I was a kid, everyone said, ah, don't make that a federal issue. <laughs> everything now is a federal issue. The uh, the weakness of the Democrat, I think the weakness uh, for the for the uh, Republicans is obvious. They, they're poorly positioned on this issue. Back when uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, was you know, back before he came in, when Barack Obama chose a uh, nominee, uh, the Republicans delayed and deferred. They said you should wait for the election. Now, you know, the, all of the Republicans in the Senate are just completely contradicting themselves. Now we have to do it now. And they look, I think, a little bit weak on that point. Um, I think on the, the weakness on the Democrat side is a little bit this um, fixation on defending a, uh, a balance 
in the Supreme Court, I guess you could simply say this is the only way the red zone, the blue zone will get along is to basically uh, create gridlock in the Supreme Court, uh, just as we kind of have a gridlock in the legislative branch. Clearly and politically, uh, this will help Trump. Uh, it will certainly galvanize the base of his party, and it may be important in Florida. I mentioned earlier Barbara Lagoa, who's Cuban-American, and look, uh, Joe Biden is already struggling with Latinos. We've covered that before on this show. Uh, Latinos are actually shifting. It's the, like one of the bright spots uh, on Trump's side. Latinos have been shifting toward Trump. Uh, Asian Americans uh, have shifting the other way, and you know African Americans were never really in play at all. Uh, but this could be this could be uh, good for him. So the progressives are aghast. The red zone is delighted. Uh, the political effects. Um, further difficulty reaching budget deal and stimulus. I mean, we actually have to have a budget deal, frankly, to prevent the federal government from running out of money. Uh, as always, this is going to be a cliffhanger. Speaker um, Nancy Pelosi is hanging around because she still wants a stimulus. I think there's now no hope of stimulus before the election, given the charge on this issue. Uh, so I think that's off. Uh, this will have a negative effect on the economy, uh, just for that reason alone. The election effects... I think could be less than a lot of people assume in terms of direct motivation to vote. And the reason is, as we have discussed many times on the show, both sides are just uh, already totally energized. Uh, so it now hardly matters. <laughs> There's only so much you can energize people. I mean, who out there doesn't have a, a reason either to vote for, uh, I could say, for Biden or against Trump, but it's really more for or against Trump, right? Right. Um Everyone's already energized. Uh, what about the Senate, House, and state? Uh, yes, uh, GOP moderates like Susan Collins uh, in Maine, uh, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, may be put in a difficult position. Uh, of course, they can obviously vote to not go along because that may help them marginally with, with their electorate. But I, I even wonder, I think what they really would have preferred is for this never to have come up at all, so they wouldn't have to make a choice. Because I guarantee you, there are plenty of red zone red zoners up in Maine who are never going to forgive Susan Collins, who might just say, you know, I, yeah, I voted for you before because I thought you were on the right side. But if you don't vote for this uh, guy, you don't go along with the Senate, uh, I'm just going to leave it blank. You know, I, I won't vote for... Um, uh, what's her name? You're from Sarah Gideon. <laughs> Sarah Gideon. Yeah, they're never going to vote for Sarah Gideon, but they just may not for, vote for, for Susan Collins either. Right. Uh, I see uh, Grassley is still on the fence. Romney now has announced he is going along, so it makes the, the GOP uh, chance look better. Could there be longer term political deals? People have talked about, uh, you know, could the Democrats agree to go along if if the Republican, I've heard this actually proposed, if the if the Republicans go along with D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood, and I'm thinking, what? Uh, but, you know, that's up there. But, you know, we talked earlier about constitutional crisis. We did not have this in mind, but this now comes into play, right? Um, but I'll tell you one reason why, I think the less talked about, why Trump wants to get this in, and that has to do with the adjudication of lawsuits stemming from the election. We pointed out a couple of weeks ago that there are hundreds of lawsuits already filed, more of them every day, having to do with election credentials and process in all the states. 
many of these will have to be decided, right? Uh, in the few weeks, really, the four weeks, kind of the safe harbor period after the election date, uh, November 3rd. And there's a shadow docket in the Supreme Court. They don't have to actually write opinions, but they have to decide these one way or the other. And before, um, you know, there were four liberals, four conservatives, and the Chief Justice John Roberts was a swing vote who, you know, has an iffy reputation with a lot of conservatives, right? He wants to be consensualist. He wants to kind of split the difference. Uh, now there are only three liberals, Stephen Breyer, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, versus four conservatives, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas. But that still makes, that still makes Chief Justice John Roberts the swing vote, even, you know, right. four on four. Um, but if one more conservative justice were on there, well, now Sam Alito is the swing vote. So even if John Roberts, the, uh, uh, the chief justice, uh, votes, you know, in favor of the Democrats in some voting rights case, uh, they could overrule him. So imagine that. Uh, so I think there's actually a very clear near-term interest uh, in making sure that this happens right away and actually is already in place uh, before um, before these uh, cases actually go to this uh, Supreme Court. So in the case of a close election, which may in the early returns already be going Trump's way, uh, we kind of went through that scenario before on our show. But uh, I think I think that just, wow, it just raises the tension level. I don't think people are going to talk about stimulus at all in the near future. So that's where we are with that. Um, I think that's enough. Uh, I'm kind of stressed out talking about, you know, the near term and politics. Why don't we go abroad? Um, I'm going to bring you into the conversation right. here. Uh, uh, let's talk about fascinating subject. Uh, Yaroslav Kaczynski, who's doesn't really even have a p official position in government. He's sort of the elder uh, leader or wise man or whatever of the uh, 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 Law and Justice Party, right? And and right. he has a thing about animal rights. I find this fascinating. So why don't you take it from there? All right. So Kaczynski proposed this animal rights bill, Neil. It would outlaw the farming of fur animals and the ritual sacrifice of animals. Now, ritual sacrifice is kind of a weird word. But what this ultimately means is it would stop the killing of animals under kosher rules and the rules of halal. Now... In Poland, the export of kosher meat and halal meat is a massive industry. I think it accounts for 5% of the agri-food exports from the country. Uh, religious certified beef is worth 1.5 billion euros in the country. And this bill would ultimately stop it altogether. Now, this has farmers furious, you can imagine. It's a lot of money, and farmers usually have been the support of the Law and Justice Party in the right. Now, the Law and Justice Party actually doesn't have a full majority in Parliament. They have these a coalition with some smaller parties. And these smaller parties went against Kaczynski and tried to stop this bill. Now, Kaczynski is furious, and he has announced that he is breaking up the coalition government. Law and Justice will try to rule as a minority party. And if they said if it's not successful, they're going to be calling for yeah, new yeah. elections. If there's a no confidence vote. That's it, right? And 
But my right. question is, what is Andres Duda, the president? Uh, you know, we talked about him and, and sort of the age difference and, and kind of his slightly more, um, I don't know how to say it, more um, kind of pragmatic view. Uh, what does he think of right. this? I think he's not saying much because I think he's trying to keep Kaczynski on his side. It's pretty much said that, you know, toe the party line right now. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, but this this may just demolish their own coalition, I guess. Uh, right. Um, well, I, you know, I they I think the only one right now hugely in favor of uh, uh, Kaczynski right now are are minks. You know, they they must be right, the they, they must be uh, just they must be ecstatic. Uh, this is good news for them. So. Right. All right. And so let's move to uh, from Poland to I think we can move from Poland to Poland and Germany. What's happening there? Right. Well, it seems Poland's starting to try to pick a fight with Germany. Uh, Germany announced that they were sending a new diplomat to Poland. His name is Arndt Loringhoven. And Kaczynski ordered the Polish government to delay accepting this new uh, diplomat. And it's been three months, and they just finally accepted him. But his main complaint was this man's father served as a military officer uh, for the Nazis and was stationed in Hitler's bunker. He's made these grand speeches now, Shavinsky is saying, you know, why should we accept this man? Germany did all these terrible things during World War II, and it's just opening up new wounds. You know, he's really trying to rally up the country about this. Wow. And, um... So just a little bit of um, uh, background on this is that the European People's Party, this is the uh, kind of coalition of right of center, but mainstream parties uh, in, you know, in, in, in Strasbourg and Brussels, uh, does include Angela Merkel's party, uh, the Christian Democrats, uh, and it even includes, um, I believe, still uh, Fidesz, uh, you know, Hungary's uh sort of populist party, but does not include law and justice, right? Law and justice is part right. of a separate coalition. So um, I think you, it's a little bit surprising because you'd think that these are both conservatives. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Poland has always had differences uh, with Germany because Germany is always picking on Poland for, you know, undermining democracy and, and not, you know, doing everything, uh, you know, by the book uh, and, Hungary has also has even threatened to pull out of of the uh, European People's Party for that reason, but you'd think he would have more purchase power if he stayed inside uh, the People's Party. But I, I think that uh, Kaczynski is just naturally combative and assertive, uh, and he wants to take it to Germany. Um, the real irony here, and that you know, I'm I'm setting up a segue for you here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Christian, the real irony here is that one of the biggest differences between Poland and Germany is Poland is more anti-Russian than German. You know, one of the Poland's biggest complaints is Germans doing, you know, Nordstrom and, you know, all these deals with Putin. And then they're really not all that hard line on, on you know, commitment to NATO necessarily. Um, whereas given their history, you know, Poland, this is existential. Right. And the fascinating thing is, is that recently He's picking a fight with Angela Merkel at precisely the moment when Angela Merkel is at last showing backbone against Putin, right? So what's going on there? Well, you know that there was this uh, Russian opposition leader, uh, Mr. Navalny, who was poisoned by, it seems like, Putin. He was flown into Germany and 
Germans have confirmed that he was poisoned with a, a Novichok agent, this, you know, Soviet-used uh, gas. Right? I think it's a gas. Well, it's, a, no, sure it's, it's not a gas. It's a chemical. It's, a, I think, a liquid. But they... But but it, but it's clearly a a, a nerve blocking agent, and it's it has all right. the classic signs of something that the I should say the Soviets, but you know the Russians designed and and have been known to use. Well, Merkel has said that since Russia doesn't seem like they're going to open any kind of investigation, and she says if they do not take this issue seriously, that uh, Germany will start slapping sanctions on the Nord Stream two gas pipeline, which has been this joint project with Russia and Germany. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, so I think a lot of the big German businessmen must be, you know, I should say business people or corporations or whatever you want to call them, but they must be furious. I mean, billions of dollars has been spent on this, right? Right. Um, and I think George mm-hmm. Schroeder is probably on the board of at least a, a couple of those companies. Anyway, the <laughs> best and the brightest of Germany have invested in this, you know, Ostpolitik, if we want to give it a word. And and here, Merkel is, is threatening it. You'd think that Poland would be, uh, I don't know, supportive, uh, but that's not going. Right. That's not going on. So, all of this is the mystery that is Yaroslav Kaczynski, right? We just don't know quite what's going on in his mind. Um, well, speaking of Putin, you raised his name, not me. Um, that <laughs> brings up the issue of Belarus, and let's face it, uh, that's the current showdown taking place. So, what's the news there? Well, protests are still continuing, and, you know, we get this funny story, Neil, that actually we're going to connect Belarus to our ongoing Turkey story. Uh, The EU was planning on putting sanctions on Belarus, and Cyprus came out of nowhere, and they have blocked the sanctions from going through and said, we will only allow sanctions if the EU also agrees to put sanctions on Turkey for violating the water rights. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, okay, so I get it. So this is the official Cyprus government, uh, very pro-Greek. Obviously, anything that's bad for Turkey, they want. But also, uh, Cyprus is where the Russians stuff all their money, right? I mean, that's where all the banks are. That's right. where all the Russian funds are. So I'm sure that they're doing it. It's a twofer, right? I mean, <laughs> they get to... Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get to do a little bit Putin's bidding, and they also get to, you know, stand up uh, for the Greeks against uh, Turks. Um, you know, and if I can just say, this is really one of the you know, fatal defects, if you ask me, about the EU's foreign policy, uh, that they are organized in the manner of uh, what we used to call a Polish parliament. Um, and come back to Poland again, right? But during the Middle Ages, um, you know, People don't always know this, but really from the really the Black Death, uh, early in the Black Death, really 13th century, 14th, 15th, 16th century, one of the largest entities uh, in Central Europe was the Poland-Lithuanian Empire. It was enormous. Uh, And it, however, began to suffer with the rise of the major nation states, you know, post-Westphalia. Uh, because it was defenseless. And one of the reasons why it was defenseless it was it organized around this medieval um, uh, parliament or congress in which all of the Polish nobles, uh, which eventually included even very poor people that just had a title, they got together in this enormous meeting room and one person could veto any action. <laughs> so 
<laughs> this was completely dysfunctional. And obviously, when Prussia and Austria-Hungary and Russia wanted to take repeated huge bites out of Poland, what they would do is they would just bribe a few of the nobles <laughs> to, to uh, you, know, you know, to veto. Uh, and so Poland was help, helpless. And, and the, as 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 is as is well known, uh, Poland disappeared for about 150 years. Uh, but it but it reminds me of the same situation. If you have a uh, a committee where just one person can veto, um, I mean, come on. I mean, this is a good case. I mean, basically, Putin could bribe Cyprus. In effect, I'm not saying necessarily that happened, but you see what I mean. I mean, one small member's interest can block. I mean, that's fatal to me. Um, okay. Don't want to stop our conversation there, but we got we brought in Cyprus, Turkey, Greece. I think that's a short step from there to talk about Libya. Yes. Well, actually, on the Libyan front, the civil war, it, not much has gone on in the last few weeks. It's cooling off a little bit. Will it go back? Not. We're not really sure, but if we go up to Turkey again, you know, they've actually de-escalated some of their moves in the Mediterranean. Uh, they've moved their vessels out of the contested water, and they're in talks with Greece, we learned this week, to apparently start some kind of negotiation. The two countries seem like they're willing to discuss the water rights, try to de-escalate it. But another thing to keep on your radar, Neil, the EU has announced that on Thursday and Friday of this week, they are going to discuss the Turkey issue and probably lay out some guidelines if... Turkey goes in again, there'll probably be sanctions, but we're waiting to see. Well, unless, um, I don't know, who else can we get to veto it? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if Turkey really has many friends um, among the EU members who, who they could get. Maybe, maybe um, the problem is that when, you know, geographically the closest is Greece, and of course they'll never vote in favor of Turkey, but I'm just thinking of who's first in the line for another wave of of emigration, right? That's what Erdogan really has as a trump card against the EU. And that's why the EU basically kind of tolerates Turkey. All right. From there, we go to the United Kingdom and the new mess over Brexit. Maybe you can enlighten us about, you know, hard border, (laughs) soft border. I think we're probably tired of hearing about that. There's a lot to entangle here, but the main issue is between Ireland, member of the EU, and Northern Ireland, part of the UK. So back a year ago when the UK and the EU, they signed, you know, they signed a document that was basically, it was a plan of how Brexit was going to work. And they came up with what was called the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now this was trying to keep a soft border between Northern Ireland and Ireland where goods could freely go back and forth without checkpoints. But to make sure that this could happen, they agreed that Northern Ireland would follow EU custom laws. Now because of this, this means anything coming into Northern Ireland from uh, England, Scotland, and Wales, Northern Ireland would have to check it to make sure it follows the EU rules. Now, Boris Johnson has proposed a law that would give British lawmakers the option to override this previous agreement that they made with the EU. So this has people worried that the soft border could go away and you might get, again, checkpoints between Northern Ireland and the country of Ireland. Yeah, this has always been a problem. Obviously, uh, there's a, you know, 
you know some of the some of the Northern Ireland uh, uh, members of Parliament support uh, uh, Boris Johnson or, or uh, you know Tories, and uh, they are you know famously uh, emphatically in favor of being totally part of the UK. You know, not not they don't they don't want any of this. Uh, um, you know, we'll we'll right. stay in the EU for now. Uh, you know, they're more British than British, right? So this this remains a problem. I I just don't know why uh, Boris Johnson's bringing this on himself. Uh, the the main problem, of course, is the repercussions not just with the EU but in America, right? Uh, uh, right. Uh, the uh, Joe Biden has basically said. Uh, many of the Democrats have said. If if Boris Johnson goes along with a hard border in uh, Northern uh, Ireland, uh, which would actually might bring back you know the 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 troubles and the violence, which a series of Democratic leaders uh, in America in the 1990s and OOs and 1980s and so on uh, struggled to actually find a solution to uh, that uh, he said. Uh, don't even hope uh, for a trade deal with the United States. Now, you'd have to think that that must be extremely important uh, for for Boris Johnson, particularly if uh, Trump loses. Um, So I don't know how wise this policy is. Uh, You'd think that it was just, you know, that's a sacrificial loss. He just could could lose that point. Uh, Okay, maybe the Northern Northern Ireland would be unhappy. We'll go along with this because we've got bigger we got bigger issues. I mean, the Democratic Party has always had historically a closer attachment uh, to Irish Americans and the Irish Americans have had a long attachment to, you know, republicanism and independence from Britain, but a little bit anti-British. Uh, and I, I think that this is a big, big obstacle for them. I don't know. Um, I don't know what the political calculus there is, but um, I think what he's doing is what he's really trying to do is not do anything with the United States. I think he's trying to raise the uh, the odds. Uh, I think he's trying to raise his negotiating position by EU by telling him how ready they are to go with a hard Brexit in their but So it's a really complicated game, right? He's really, this is a strategy in his negotiations with the EU, trying to convince the EU that they're really ready to go to a hard Brexit. Uh, so you better make concessions now. Um, well, well, we'll see if it works. I think we do have a, a couple of uh, bits and pieces of news in East Asia. Why don't you Why don't you go there for a second? Yeah, let's start at Thailand, where we've been talking about the protests. Well, last Saturday they've had their biggest protest yet in Bangkok. It was between twenty thousand and fifty thousand people, and this was the anniversary of the two thousand six military coup. Now they have called for on October fourteenth. They're planning a general strike across the country, and they're also asking people to boycott the Siam Commercial Bank. Now, this bank, the king of Thailand, has a 24% stake in. So, you know, they're they're trying to hit him where his pocketbook is because, you know, the king's wealth is a big point of contention among these protesters. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I can't remember what it was. It was like 30 or $40 billion. I mean, that's, a, that's an enormous right. sovereign wealth fund that's just controlled, you know, controlled by the monarch. And... Uh, tell me about the, uh, I find this is a little bit of a pop culture arcana, and that is the three-finger salute. Yes, well, the protesters will often put up three fingers in the air, and this comes from The Hunger Games, Neil, the books and movie franchise that, 
in this fantasy world, sci-fi, they put up three fingers in protest to the government. So well, I, you'll see this all across the city. I didn't. I didn't see part two and part three. That's my problem, and I. I, I guess I didn't <laughs> read part two or part three either. So, uh, but I think that's very millennial and uh, interesting. Yeah. How contagious uh, uh, the uh, American uh, kind of millennial culture is. Uh, they could also, I suppose, you know, put on Harry Potter glasses. That would be interesting. <laughs> that, would be, that would be highly unexpected. All right, uh, let's move on to Taiwan. Well, over the weekend, we talked about in the past that this was coming up. The uh, U.S. Undersecretary of State visited Taiwan to meet with the president. And just as the meeting was taking place, China flew in two bombers and 16 fighter jets into Taiwanese airspace. You know, not much came of it, but... It was really a sign of saying they China was furious that the U.S. was sim- sending someone in the first place, and they wanted to let their discontent discontent be known. Yeah, uh, we actually had an interesting newswire about uh, the share of Americans who'd be willing to go to war uh, t- uh, on behalf of of Taiwan against China. Uh, it's still a minority, uh, but it's edging up to forty percent. It used to be considerably lower. In fact. Uh, kind of ominous uh, sign is that the share of Americans willing to go to war, uh, believe it or not, almost any scenario has actually been going up uh, pretty rapidly over the past five or six years. This is uh, 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 Pew Research data. Uh, hopefully one of these days we'll, we'll have an occasion to come back to that. Uh, what else? All right, here's our last piece of news. This is India-China relations. You know, we keep talking about this border, Neil, that is a big flashpoint. Well, the foreign secretaries of both countries met in Moscow, and they put out a joint statement that they will both attempt to de-escalate the tensions at the border. Now, they gave no specifics how this is going to happen, and most people think that this is just words. It means nothing. But what people are very curious about is, you know, this border's in the Himalayan mountains, and it's getting colder. And when winter comes, it can get below 40 degrees Celsius. Now, it will cost a lot of money to keep the amount of troops and, and uh, weapons there in this kind of weather. So will they actually start de-escalating just because of how much money it will cost, or they got to keep what they have there? Wow. Well, I imagine, too, that it probably helps defense. I mean, offense always takes a lot more logistics and supplies and, and, mm-hmm. and mobility so that's probably, you know, works to the advantage of um, whoever doesn't want to spend money. And probably, right. <laughs> probably, I, I don't know, I, I imagine that's that's India. I'm sure that, uh, you know, Narendra Modi wants to make a brave stand, but I'm sure that he probably doesn't want to just start spending to keep up with, um, with Xi Jinping in that area of the world. All right. I think at this point we can go to our, our Newswire item, which is uh, the aging cohort of childless women. Uh, so this has to do with, again, with Americans today in their 50s, early 60s. Uh, they have record rates of childlessness, and uh, this is going to inevitably age with them. And I think it's it's interesting. This was occasioned, actually, by a UK study. But we have the identical situation here. This is the uh, British Office of National Statistics in a study that just came up, uh, which really look forward and actually uh, suggested the UK start planning for this. Basically, what the the Office of National Statistics uh, forecasted 
is that the number of elderly women without children will skyrocket in the next 25 years. By 2045, there will be uh, 66,000 childless women over age 80. Uh, by comparison, this year, there were only 23,000. So you can see that's, uh, uh, what, uh, roughly a tripling. Right. Who are these women? They were born in the 1960s and are now in their 50s. Of this group, one in five is childless. Now, there's an interesting story here because starting with the 1920 birth cohort, you think about, you know, late wave GIs just beginning to move into the silent generation. The share of women without children fell steadily. Now, part of that was that, of course, a lot of them avoided having children during the uh, Great Depression. Uh, nothing like, you know, coming of age in, uh, in, uh, in 1933 that would really put a downer on having kids. And many of them later on never had kids, right? They put off marriage, put off children, then came World War II. And, and it, you know, it, at the point we make all the time, which is fertility uh, delayed is, is often fertility denied. That's just a uh, demographic fact. So, but as you get women who came, came of age progressively earlier, just after World War II, they're much more likely to have kids. So the share of women without children fell steadily by birth year until the mid-1940s, right? That's kind of early wave boomers, right? Um, and these were people coming of age, you know, into uh, uh, young adulthood, young manhood, whatever, right around, you know, the, the, the early 1960s, mid-1960s. The share then reversed with each passing cohort throughout the boomer birth years. I often point out boomers were a generation of trends, huge trends from first birth year to last. And one of those trends was a much larger share of women never had kids. So the bottom line, this is true in the UK, a woman born in 1965 is twice as likely to be childless than a woman born in 1945. Uh, and we can... Well, can't do this on a radio podcast, but uh, you can just see the charts here. And, and, and basically, this pattern isn't unique to the UK. Uh, roughly the same changes happen in America, not quite to such an extreme extent. Childless fell, first cohort to last among the silent generation. Childless rose, first cohort to last among boomers, uh, nearly doubling uh, from early wave boomers, about 9% of uh, women were childless. These are women today in their you know mid-70s. At the other end of the boom generation, I would define those born around 1959-60, so again, a doubling. Uh, The net result in America will be a similar surge of elderly women 80 plus without children, uh, starting really starting in the early 19, uh, starting in the early 2030s, but really peaking in the 2040s. Well, I'm sure there's a question that many of you are asking, uh, why did these women not have kids? right? Well, (laughs) there is evidence that some of the rise in childness may be due to rising rates of involuntary infertility by birth cohort. And there's been a lot of um, articles on that. So I'm sure that you've all seen many of them, for example, falling testosterone and sperm levels. That's something we've written about among men uh, and by cohort, by the way. Uh, So it's much higher. This problem is much higher among millennials than it is among boomers. Uh, and to a rising incidence of, of uh, PCOS, is, uh, polycystic, uh, PCOS is a polycystic ovary syndrome, and uh, it's uh, a common cause today of infertility. It's, by the way, uh, highly correlated with uh, diabetes and obesity and, and like all other things going first wave last to boomers. We see those trends. 
Uh, I would have to say, though, that such fertility obstacles would have to be balanced against medical advances in fertility treatment, uh, right? <laughs> That's, so on the other hand, many of these women now have uh, access to uh, technologies we didn't used to have. A more important driver of rising childlessness from first to last cohort boomers is the timing of the cultural and sexual revolution. I mean, keep in mind, this happened in the late 60s and 70s just as these cohorts were coming of age. So the later you were born, the younger you were hit by all the stuff going on, right? When women first started gaining relative to men in educational and professional attainment, a rising share were able to attain economic security outside of marriage. And over those same years, I might say, marriage and motherhood offered a declining prospect of economic security even for those women who might have otherwise chosen them. And I'm talking about just the, uh, the, the kind of crumbling state of marriage, the skyrocketing divorce rate, and so on. So all of those cultural expectations were changed over the same years. So um, a growing number of women took the opportunity to pursue life goals unrelated to having their own children. And that gave rise today. You can see that among midlife women, the, the rise of spinsterhood, you know, and women taking pride in, the, in this sort of new identity. And by the way, throughout American history, we have had repeatedly some large generations of spinsters. The last one was the missionary generation that was born uh, just soon after uh, the Civil War and who came of age during the 1890s, right around the turn of the century, a famous generation. They were the ones who pushed through temperance and prohibition, and uh, but, a, but a very crusading generation. Uh, this is including Jane Addams and the settlement house workers and so on. A very, um, uh, very much like boomers in many ways, we think, if you, if you think about generations and archetypes, they had a very similar location in history, came of age in an awakening. A very large share of them uh, were childless. Uh, and we see that pattern being repeated. But here's the, here's the, the warning uh, from the Office of National T Statistics, and that is these spinsters will lack the benefits of informal caregiving provided by their own children. In the UK, 43% of 85-plus women rely on informal care, uh, while only 20% rely on formal services. And guess what the most common provider of informal care is? Adult children, right? So this is going to be an issue. Um, as the U.S. and, and, and the U.K. Uh, prepare for aging boomers, uh, we may want to anticipate what will happen to this massive population of late elder women at both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. You know, at the have-not end, at uh, women who are struggling uh, and, you know, maybe widowed, uh, and have a little savings, policymakers will need to prepare for new demands on social services. And on the affluent end, boomers will start tooling up to meet the growing life cycle, uh, or I should say lifestyle demands uh, of these new spinsters as consumers. And we've actually done a few pieces on the return of the spinster. It's sort of a, a, a fascinating uh, generational topic for people born in those years, really uh, starting, I think, for people born in the middle of, of uh, the boom generation, and particularly with, you know, so-called Generation Jones, you know, people born in the, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And uh, we see in this, in, this, uh, uh, in this cohort of women um, 
uh, problems and, and and challenges, also opportunities uh, with with childless that they'll be facing as they grow older, which we can directly tie right to social trends and how our culture was changing, you know, way back in in the in the in the in the sixties and seventies. And I think it's fascinating to me how generations are shaped young by events. And they're shaped in ways that just stay with them as they grow older. And they continue to change uh, that generation's attitude toward themselves, their self-image, and, and ultimately their, their possible scripts or their possible options as they grow older in, in, in fascinating ways. I think in many ways we are, we are captive to history in these ways that we often don't recognize. Uh, this is a way in which um, you know one era shapes another era in ways that are still with us. So... With that, um, I think we, I think we covered it all, Christian. I don't know about you, but I, I think we <laughs> we ran the table. We have some other interesting pieces coming up on boomers. I like to get to. Uh, I'll just uh, uh, seed one little idea that we uh, are coming out with shortly, and uh, I think this will fascinate a lot of you, Chris. It's a little depressing, but it is the rising rate of um, of uh, uh, dementia among boomers. And I don't mean just the rising number. I mean at every age for this new generation that's beginning to move, not quite in their late elder years yet, but beginning to get older, we actually are beginning to find rising rates of dementia at any given age. Uh, There's some interesting health reasons for this. But this, you know, this is another big challenge uh, for younger generations dealing with elder boomers. You know, (laughs) a lot more childlessness. You know, a lot more dementia uh, compounded, of course, uh, by the much larger numbers, right? Larger rates combined with larger numbers, that's explosive. So until then, maybe we'll get to that uh, next week, uh, Christian. Maybe we'll do that next yeah, week. Yeah, okay. let's do it. Uh, until then, uh, we, will, uh, we will be with you next, uh, next week. And as always, thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.